Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. That says they took them wives of the women of Moab. Here is a real heartbreak, another heartbreak for Naomi. When it says they took them wives of the women of Moab, that's a disaster. God specifically forbid the Jewish people from taking wives of the women of Moab. And Naomi watched her sons take wives of the women of Moab, and she remembers what Moses told the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 7, 3-4, when he said, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto her son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Which is what she saw. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And in Judges 10, 6, it says the children of Israel again did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. So Naomi felt what is described about what when Isaac and Rebekah, the couple, and they have the son Esau, and Esau marries a Hittite Woman, He took a wife of the woman of Hittite. And, and it says in Genesis 26, 33, 34 through 35, Genesis 34, 30, 35, it says, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashemoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, took two wives. Which, and then it says this in verse 35, Genesis 26, 35, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah were in a state of shock over the marriage of their son Esau to Hittite women. Especially Isaac. He knew how important it was for a son to not marry someone like a Hittite or a Moabite. He, Isaac watched his father. Abraham had his trusted servant Eliezer put his hand under his body and make him swear that he's not going to allow Isaac to marry someone like a Hittite or a Moabite, but that Eliezer was to go back to Abraham's people and get a wife for Isaac, which he did. That's where Rebekah came from. And so now Abraham is now gone. And the horror of Isaac and Rebekah as they watched their own son Esau do the very thing that Abraham was dead set should not happen. He takes a wife of the Hittites. And every time that Isaac and Rebekah think about it, it becomes what the Bible describes as a grief of mind. Every time Isaac and Rebekah think about their son Esau marrying the Hittite, in their mind they're like grieving over Esau like he's died, like they're going to his funeral. It's a grief of mind. And for Naomi, when she thinks about her two sons, that they marry women of Moab, it's too much for her to bear. It's a grief of mind. In, in fact, notice how the two wives are referred to in verse, in verse 4 when it says, wives of the women of Moab. That's a particularly painful description for Naomi to hear because that's exactly the description of the very tool that Moab, the king of Moab, used to destroy the Jewish people. Almost destroy them all. 
Because in Numbers 22, chapters 22 through 24, the king of Moab named Balak hired a prophet, his prophet named Balaam, to destroy the Jewish people by cursing them. And you know the, what happened. I mean, and it, he tries, and the donkey gets in his way, and everything happens, and he can't do it, and he ends up blessing them, and it makes the, the, the king Balak very angry. Because God did not allow Balaam to curse Israel. In fact, every time he tries to curse him, he's forced to bless Israel. And Balak, the king, is just incensed. He's so angry. And he's frustrated with Balaam because he hired him to curse Israel and he ends up blessing him. So the end of Numbers 24, Balak, the king of Moab, so frustrated with his, his failure to destroy Israel with curses. That's how it ends, the end of Numbers 24. But the start of the next chapter. No, it's not good. (laughs) Numbers 25. We find Balak has finally discovered the way. Finally discovered how to destroy Israel. He finally has brought a lot of death in Israel. And his new strategy reads like this. In Israel, Bode and Shittim, the people began to commit whoredom with the women of Israel. Moab, the daughters of Moab. There's that term. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their God. The people did eat. They bowed themselves to their God. Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every man as men that were joined to Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation, children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas... The son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose up among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man, chased him, into the tent, thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 24,000. See, that was Balak's new strategy. He, he, that worked. It got 24,000 Jews to die. And it's described as committing whoredom with the women of Moab, the daughters of Moab, and they bowed down to their gods. And the women of Moab were the key to the destruction of so many in Israel. And that's why Israel was specifically warned about the women of Moab. So in verse 4, when it describes these wives for Naomi's sons as of the women of Moab, there's just nothing less than it's chilling. It's horror to Naomi. But what could Naomi do? There were no Jewish women in Moab for her sons to take. There weren't any there. Naomi didn't have an Eliezer that she could send back to Bethlehem, Judah, to bring some wives back for her sons. So she just watched in horror and fear. And she she saw what's described. They took them wives of the women of Moab. Now, verse 4 now turns for a moment on these two individual wives is they're not just women of Moab, but they're individuals. There's a certain woman, there's a certain woman, and we're going to see them that way and how they, the spotlight turns. First of all, in verse 4, we learn that the name of one is Orpah and the name of the other is Ruth. It's interesting how the Bible brings out these words. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other 
was Ruth. Again, the Bible is emphasizing individuality of the persons. Individuality of each person. That's not a Moabite. That's not a Moabite. That's Orpah. That's Ruth. And it's just like in verse 1. There's a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. There's a certain woman named Orpah. And there's a certain woman named Ruth. And they will not be broad-brushed by God as just being women of Moab, but each one has been individually highlighted by the true light that comes in to the, the true light that lights every man and every woman who comes into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one, Orpah, Ruth, will turn to or will turn from that true light and their choice, as is true for everyone today, and their choice to turn to or to turn from the Lord Jesus Christ determines eternal destinies. And we'll come back to their individual life that they make. Now we focus in the last statement of verse 4, where it says, and they dwelled there about 10 years. Now, we're not told the exact amount of time because it doesn't matter. So we're told it's about 10 years. That's good enough for us. About 10 years. It's a long time. 10 years is a long time. And during those 10 years, Naomi is waiting, like my cousin Nancy, you know, have, for the have lots of babies, right? But Naomi is waiting for the lots of babies, and the lots of babies don't come. And Naomi's asking, where are the grandchildren? And she's gonna, how is she going to build her life around grandchildren without grandchildren? So the, the last words in verse 4, and they dwelt there about 10 years. The obvious part of what's missing is that they dwelt there for 10 years, and there was born unto them, etc., etc. But there was no born unto them. It just says they dwelt there for about 10 years. In other words, for 10 long years, everybody's waiting for children, no children, and she begins to say, she, she, so Naomi begins to think about what it says in Psalm 127, 3, where it says, Children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And so she's waiting for the fruit of the womb. Where is it? From Orpah and Ruth, but there's no fruit. And she remembers then the history of Leah, history of the Jewish people, where it says in Genesis 29, 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Naomi wondered, why didn't God open the womb of Orpah and Ruth as he did for Leah? And she, and she remembers what happened to Abraham's wife when Sarah, when she was taken by Abimelech into the harem, when it says what God did. It says in Genesis 20, verse 18, the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And then Naomi begins to wonder, has God fast closed up the wombs of Orpah and Ruth as he did in the house of Abimelech. And the haunting thought lodges in Naomi. I wonder if it's a judgment from God. I wonder because my sons married women of Moab that he's made it so that they won't have children. And then this haunting thought in her mind for these long ten years of barren wombs comes. And then the next blow comes in, in verse 5. And Malon and Kilian died also. Both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Now again, we're standing at the gravesides. We don't know if the, both the sons died at the same time or separately. It doesn't matter. But we're standing there again. And we, there's the open graves. And, the, and there's Naomi. And she's looking down on her sons, her last hope on earth. And she's saying goodbye to her sons. And the dirt is covering the bodies. This is awful. And you see how verse 5 really brings home the blow to Naomi, right after verse 4 of patiently waiting for the hope of grandchildren comes the blow that her two sons die. Not just one son dies, but both of her sons die. And that word also, it cuts deep 
when it says, and Malan and Killian died also. That means in addition to everything else that's happened comes this horrible also. Malan and Killian die. And from that word also, we can hear Naomi wail. What next? What next? After my heartache, I have also that my two sons die. They don't even leave me grandchildren. And notice in verse five, 5 where he says, and both of them. So it's an emphasis. It emphasizes the grief, sadness. We can feel it. Not just one of her sons. Both of them. And verse, and verse 5, notice how it says their names. We already know their names. We know their names because verse 2 told us what their names are. You don't have to tell us their names again in verse 5. But why does verse 5 repeat the names? Because it's not just her sons died, but it's, it's Malin, it's Killian. It brings home the individuality of her two sons. You can lose a child and it's, there's no child to replace that child. And this is Malon, this is Killian, and she didn't see Malian and Killian as the group called her sons. She saw each one as the individual, and each one as a certain person to Naomi. So by restating their individual names, and again, it emphasizes the grief of this. And so in verse 5, speaking of this, notice now how in verse 5, she's, she's not even called by her name in verse 5. She's simply called, Naomi is simply called the woman. So Naomi is so crushed with the loss of her husband, her two sons, she no longer sees herself as a person. She's just a woman. And she no longer is Naomi. She doesn't, she, she's so crushed, she's just a woman. She, the heart has gone out of Naomi. There's no more left in her. She sees herself reduced to a puddle of nothing. Just a woman with no face and, and no person left anymore. Just a woman. She no longer sees herself as Naomi, which means pleasant. She now so crushed that she even, we'll see a little bit later on, she renames herself. Don't call me that. Call me bitter, Mara. Oof, boy. And so we read in verse 5 what her state has been reduced to. The woman was left of her two sons and her daughter. And now everything was said about how Naomi felt about being left out, left behind, left without, left alone, has all been multiplied by two or three. And she feels there's no hope. She's got no hope, no one in life. She doesn't see her daughters-in-law in the picture. God does. God sees one. But she doesn't. And she fully expects that her daughters-in-law will also say sayonara. Goodbye. But now, in this state of being absolutely crushed, it says in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord visited his people and giving them bread. Naomi is beaten down. She's got nothing to live for. She's been reduced to poverty. She's practically a beggar. And she figures she might as well be a beggar in her own country. So she's heard that God has visited his people and giving them bread. And by the way, isn't that a beautiful description that the Bible gives for having food, the Lord visited his people in giving bread. That's what godliness is, to see things this way. Godliness is making personal the good things that happen to us by saying it comes from God. That's what godliness is. Godliness is not seeing the company manager or the company or the employer is giving you bread, but God. Godliness is not seeing Albertsons as visiting us and giving us bread, but God. 
You know, godliness is not is seeing the Lord is visiting us and giving us. It's bowing the head. Godliness is bowing the head before eating and thanking Him for giving the bread. And godliness is taking the good things that happen to us in life, make them personal between us and God by the practice of thanking God for them. Nobody in Moab was saying the Lord visited us by giving us bread. In Moab, they're saying our false gods, our idols, they give us bread. And, and, and this is the way, at verse 6, it reads about talking about the country of Noah, Moab where God is dishonored, and then talking about the Lord visiting his people and giving them bread. And it just made Naomi, it just made her yearn inside of her. I've got to go back. I've got to return. I've got to go back to the place where people look at bread and they say it came from God. And they honor God. And he visited, they say God visited, give us bread. So now in verse 6, we have a whole new theme, which is starting. Thank God. Because before verse 6, as you saw, the theme was loss. The theme was being left alone, left without, left behind. That's until the end of verse 5. But now in verse 6, a new theme starts. And it starts with the introduction of a word that's going to appear over and over and over again. And we see this word in verse 6. It's this new word, and it's the word return. Return. In the Hebrew word, it's the word, in Hebrew, it's the word shuv. So the instance here of the word shuv in verse 6 is very important because it describes what Naomi does. Naomi does when she's in this deep distress. With her, she rose, it says, with her daughters-in-law that she might return her shuv from the country of Moab. And that was good. That's a good thing. And so when we read in verse 7, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went away to return to the land of Egypt. Naomi left the place where she was. Naomi is like the prodigal son. He's described in Luke 15 in being in a bad place. It says he went, he joined himself to a city in the country, he sent him into his field to feed swine. He would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. No man gave him to him. When he came to himself, he said, How many servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before thee, no more worthy called thy son, make me as one of thy hired servants. So the prodigal son, he's left where he should have been, which is his father's house, and he went to where he should not be. And then it says that he comes to himself, and he decides, I'm going to leave. I'm going to return. And I'm going to go where I should have never left. And that's exactly how we read verse 7 here. When Naomi, just like the prodigal son, she's described as wherefore she went for out of that place where she was to return to the land of Judah. So the word return at the end of verse 7 is very important. It means to, to make an about face, to repent. And the description is so great because it's a picture of what to do when we leave God. What to do when a person walks away from God. When we've left God and we fall into some sin and we feel so guilty and so ashamed and the devil says, you're finished as a Christian. Or there's no way that you can come to God. You're not good enough. And the devil says, there's no way, that, there's no way to God for you. And the picture that we see of Naomi in verse 7 is God's picture for us because there's always a way back. To God, There's always a way of repentance. What do we have to do? Same thing, she went forth out of the place where she was to return. 
That's what the Bible says to do in Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's got to be a willingness to do what Naomi did, to say enough is enough. I'm going to go forth out of this place where I am to return to God. And we see a progression in the case of the prodigal son. First he thought, he resolved, and it says that when he came to himself, he said, you know, went through how many hired servants, and then he says, I will do this. I will arise and go to my father. That was the step one. But then there was a very important step in Luke 15, 20, and he arose. He said, I will arise. Then it says, and he arose and came to his father. And a lot of people take only the first step and not the second. A lot of people resolve to come to God. And they have an intention to come to God, but they don't follow through. And their resolution just dies on the vine. And that's why Luke 15, 20 is so important when it says, and he arose and he came to his father. And those are the steps we see here with Naomi in verse 6 where it says, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return. That's her intention. That's her resolution. So in verse 6, she's deciding to leave. But to be, and there was a pull on Naomi. Don't go, Naomi. You're old. You're too old. Don't go, Naomi. You're going to face a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment. They're going to talk about you, especially the women. We'll see that when you go back into the land. So just to read in verse 6 that she arose, that she might return, that's just the first step. That's why verse 7 is so important, which is the follow-through where it says, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was. And her two daughters, they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So as for Naomi, wherefore she went forth, Naomi, that's the difference between verse 6 and verse 7. That's the difference. Verse 6 and verse 7 is the difference between the rocky ground, rocky ground heart and the thorny ground heart and the good ground heart described in Luke 8, 13 through 15, where it says that the ones on the rocks, they, which when they, they hear, they receive the word with joy. They don't have any root. When they, while they believe, but then temptation comes, they fall away. Thorns, they also hear. They go forth. They're choked, it says, with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. No fruit. But a good ground, good, honest heart. They hear the word. They keep it. They bring forth fruit. Each one of those grounds, those three grounds, they all hear the word. The stony ground, no root. Temptation comes. Intentions go out the window. Resolutions go out the window. Stony heart. The stony heart has no root. One through one, chapter one, verse seven. No Luke, chapter fifteen, verse twenty. The thorny heart that's choked. And that it's the weeds of deceitfulness of riches. I could get rich. I could get money. I do too much money. I could. I, and he goes after that. Or, or the cares of this life. Don't talk to me about God. I got a lot of things I got to take care of. And what happens? It's the choke. And what is this choking? It's choking verse 6. It's choking the good intentions. It's to- choking the resolutions to going out the window. And the thorny ground heart has no Ruth, verse seven, Ruth 1, verse 7. It has no Luke 15, verse 20 verse to follow through. But the good ground, it's got its roots deep into the Lord Jesus Christ, His Word. It's kept the ground free of the weeds of the love of money and the overcare of life. 
because the good ground heart has got a Ruth chapter 1 verse 7 and Luke 15 20 verse. It's the follow through. So there's a turn in this chapter. It starts off so sad, so terrible. But thank God the road to recovery has begun. And that's the great hope that we find here in this first chapter. And Naomi has no idea what's in in store for her. Great thing is going to happen. But unfortunately, it's a valley of tears right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this history and allowing us to enter into, Lord, all that happened so that we can be better prepared to simply trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.